0: Welcome to a crystal clear world of recorded music created especially for you, the film, television and radio producer. We invite you to listen to a sound sampling of selections taken from this new and ever-expanding giant library of recordings designed for your current productions. Whether your
1: subject matter be past or present, light or serious, drama or documentary...
0: Welcome back. This is EMI PM presents the Music Library. Uh, I am flying solo this show. Will is uh, hes currently farming for uh, new composers, the composer crop on a farm. Uh, but we've got two fantastic guests on the show today. We've got uh, Keith Mansfield, who he joined us on the show last year uh, to talk about the KPM All Stars show that was coming up. And we've also got Laura Cannell on the show uh, today to talk about a brand new library album that um, that she's just composed for us. Um, but we're going to kick things off straight away with uh, an old archive track. Now, this is, uh, keep, keeping with the tradition of finding some of the happiest library tracks I can, this is another German library track of which pretty much all of the happy ones are. Uh, this is a track called Jumping for Miles uh, by a composer called Denny Motion. This was on the selected sound catalogue on an album called Paloma Linda from 1982. Um this track it's got a lot of sort of build up to it but then we've just got to wait for the drop to kick in which is i've written it down it comes in at 1 minute 7 seconds so just brace yourself then again at 1 minute 53 and then again at 2 minutes 43 you'll know it when you hear it uh after that we're going to go into a new track and then we're going to get into we're going to get into the meat of the show or the tofu of the show we're very vegan friendly um and we're going to start talking to keith so first off this is jumping for miles you mm-hmm. We go. That was Jumping for Miles by Denny Motion. That was followed by Got That Jungle Fever by Darlington Chikwewo and Neil Solomon from the brand new KPM Afro Bites album. Uh, disclaimer, I should say that no chimpanzees were hurt during the recording of that track. Uh, they, they're not distressed. That is a happy noise uh, recording in the studio. Um, but we're now joined by uh, our first guest of the show, Mr. Keith Mansfield. Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining us. So, I'm going to do the thing that I always do with the guests. Uh, I'm going to try and do a quick intro to you to a piece of your own music. Sure. Um, Wish me luck. (laughs) Welcome, Keith Mansfield. He's one of the sought-after arrangers in the music business, composed of some of the best-known theme tunes, uh, such as the Wimbledon theme tune, the Grandstand theme tune, the Big Match theme tune. Uh, one of the most sampled library composers, certainly one of our most sampled. Um, Arranged for the likes of Dusty Springfield, and many, many, many more, which we'll talk about shortly. Thank you very much. <laughs> it never goes well. Welcome, <laughs> Keith. <laughs> um, I thought we would start let's start talking to you about your introduction into into music, I guess, really, into the... The music industry, I believe your sort of interest in music came around the age of 14 and you were you started to learn the saxophone.
1: Yes, I started getting interested in music in fact a little bit before that. I did have piano lessons when I was nine, but only for a year and a half. Um, I gave up piano having done grade two, which meant basically I could read, I was you written know, Mozart and Chopin, they're the sort of things you did. Um, very disappointed for my mother, who <laughs> it was not money they could easily afford. However, I didn't stop playing music. I carried on playing music, but I just didn't go to lessons. I was much more interested in sport, to be honest, in those days. Mm-hmm. So I carried on playing, and um, then I met with other people, um, accidentally, who wanted to do music. I wanted. To do, you know, I got more and more interested in music. My brother, my elder brother, had discovered things like Earl Bostic, which is, we would call that black r b very tuneful R&B, uh, and people like John Coltrane would be sidemen in a band mm-hmm. like uh, Earl Bostic. Um, and so that was the precursor to jazz because that was much easier to get hold of, Earl uh, Bostic, than jazz. Mm-hmm. And then that moved on to, uh, to jazz in the form of people like Miles Davis and Coltrane. And, you know, that period of um, the, the one we all know is Kind of Blue, but before that, there were some great albums. Milestones was another great album which was a precursor to uh, Kind of Blue. but then there were the orchestral ones like Miles Ahead and um, Sketches Mm. of Spain and things like that, fantastic Mm. albums. So that was very uh, inspirational to me Uh, and in fact to many, many, many musicians at that time. It was superb music, not just at the time. We look back now and it's still now just wonderful, unbelievable music. And around that time, particularly in America, uh, there were so many heavyweights. We talk about players. We said Coltrane and Campbell Adley and, 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 and uh, then you had Freddie Hubbard and so many. Um, my favorite, uh, Clifford Brown, just a wonderful player, gifted players, all those. And then you had the singers. I mean, we all know uh, of people like Billie Holiday. They're very fashionable names mm. now all these years later. They had a terrible life, had a really hard time. But there was, uh, and then you had, of course, you had Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan. That, there's so many wonderful singers. Then you had the white singers like Sinatra and Mel Torme. And uh, so it was just a wonderful period of heavyweight music. So mm. that's what I grew up with. That was the inspiration to me.
0: And it was around about, sort of skipping forward a little bit now, You around about 1958, uh, you began as a professional musician. That's right, yeah. Uh, and you were brought into KPM, I believe, in 1964. Yeah, uh, and that was in the arranging department. You were a copyist, mm-hmm. I believe. And so, what? How did? How was your introduction to KPM? And uh, what was it like to to work there at the beginning?
1: Well, it was slightly accidental, uh, in as much as that I turned pro at, in '58 when there were still a lot of big bands, every major city had uh, big ballrooms which employed big bands. Mm. So you could literally go from one city to another and be r- stay in work. So I turned pro-18 in Stretton-McCarno. And then my next, uh, with the same band, I then moved to Nottingham where I was there for six months. Then we moved to Liverpool for three months. And I left the, that band and I did my first summer season in Blackpool, which was uh, with great artists like Morecambe and Wise, Tommy Cooper, wow. you know, all those people. There And there were about seven or eight, big acts on this and then you'd have a 15 16 piece band with 12 dancers so i mean they were a big deal and they were long seasons. so that was going from dance band music to the, the sort of theatrical work which is all part of my sort of experience which led on to working with people like ken dodd mm. working in the pit orchestra and then 10 years later i'm conducting from emi abbey road doing an album as his you know as his musical director so that's the kind of way our our world moved very quickly. Mm. Um, So you go back to how it came to KPN. Well, uh, having been with, as a sort of uh, professional musician, sometimes you're doing residences, and other times you're just doing gigs. And uh, I was in this period when I was based in London, doing gigs all around London, and one of the gigs I did was a Saturday night in, I think it was Purley, and the lead trumpet player was a guy called Alan Morehouse. And it was the only gig that Alan did a week. Alan was a very fine trumpet player, who, I mean, Alan's been dead a long time. Now, Alan would not have minded me saying so. Alan had a drink problem, like a lot of trumpet players. Mm -hmm. Alan was an alcoholic. And um, he had stopped drinking, and he was a staff writer for KPM. But because he was a wonderful player, he couldn't stop playing. So he did one gig a week, which was this gig at Pearlie, which I was on saxophone in that gig. So he used to give us a lift back to Marlborough Road every Saturday night. And I saw an advert in Melody Maker, KPM looking for a, copyist for the copying department arranging department i knew that i had to move away from being a, a sideman in, in bands i was mm-hmm. either going to find another job or i was, had to get more into the other side of music because i was only a musician so i could be a writer
0: mm-hmm. i didn't become
1: a musician to be a musician i always wanted to write i was writing from when i was very young i started my first composition when i was 12 i started to arrange when i was 14 I'm all self-taught, but to be honest, if you're self-taught, I played with so many good musicians. If you don't pick up things intuitively, then you've got to be dumb, you know. So Mm. instead of being taught things, I picked it up by my own ears. And a lot of people I've met in my life, famous people, particularly in America, grew up the same way. They weren't in those days when we were kids, there weren't institutions to go and study big band and jazz. Classical music, yeah, but not our kind of music. So you picked it up by writing for musicians, getting in a band, and then writing for them, which is what I did. Every band I played in, I wrote for. Um, anyway, there was this gig at KPM, and I applied for it, And I guess because I knew Alan. If there was a, a long list of people applying for the job, and I don't know if there were, but if there were, that would have been the thing that tipped the balance <laughs> in my favour. And it was the best thing that ever happened. For, for me personally, because I never looked from the day I started in KPM, I never looked back. Mm. One thing I had to do the very day I came went to KPM was I realised it was not an environment that I was used to. It was nothing like being a musician. Mm. And I went at that lunchtime and I went out and bought a valve trombone. I'd always wanted to play trombone, so I went out and bought a valve trombone. And every day before I started work, every lunchtime, and every evening before I went back home, I'd practice the trombone in KPM where they kept all the scores outside the main building. So uh, it was uh, was a wonderful uh, opportunity for me to go to KPM as a musician, but to learn about the music business was Mm. something totally different because as a musician, a lot of guys are good at playing, are good at writing, but we don't really understand the business. We don't understand how often how the public see things, let alone how music publishers and people like that so, yeah, all those things are very educational to me.
0: Yeah. And I think that there was a quote um, a quote from you that I think I picked out of Oliver Lomax's book, which was that uh, KPM forced me to come to terms with pop.
1: Well, that's exactly it, you see. Mm. So, in fact, I've forgotten. I was saying just about the, 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 the business side of it. Mm. But as a musician, we sometimes, we played pop in the, it was in our pad, but none of us liked it. Mm. I mean, it was actually boring to play, coming from the big bands and that sort of thing. But when you're in KPM, you are forced to do it every day, f- to be involved in it. And I remember the day that um, uh, a new record came from America, which KPM published, called Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, mm. James Brown. We completely blew my head off. I'd never heard anything. It wasn't jazz. It certainly wasn't pop. It was just something completely and utterly different. Black music with so much power and, and life. And uh, that sort of started to turn me around to listening with less prejudiced ears. Yeah, then that then led on to Tamla Motown and things like that, which mm. were very direct. Tamla Motown didn't try to be sophisticated. It was very direct, but it was so musical, you know, great mm. musical bass lines, good feel from everybody. But they didn't overclutter things. They broke things down. Uh, whether I don't think they broke things down clinically. That's just the way the music worked. That guys would come there and they play simply, but directly. Good songs, everything about it had a kind of a direct quality. Mm. And, um, you know, it was that was part of the education as well.
0: Uh, and let's take a listen to one of, I think this was your first composition for uh, KPM. It's a track called Teenage Carnival, uh, which I think you were working on. It was a Christmas album or Christmas tracks you were doing first prior to That's this. Right, but yeah. I think this is the first one that you composed. Uh, and this, this is, a, it is a pop track, I guess. Sure, really, yeah. yeah. Um so let's take a listen to this That's one. Well, okay.
1: Remember them well. <laughs> yeah. I do. Actually, there's a story to both of them. The, fa- the fr- Free Wheelers, as you say, that wasn't my first track for the library. My first things for the library for Robin were, in fact, one was uh, Christmas Carols ja- mm. in a jazzed up sense or jazzed up and also pop versions. And then I did um, some nursery rhymes. They were my first things I did while I was actually working in the arrangement mm-hmm. department. And then the Free Wheelers, when Robin Sort of felt well, Keith is talented, but do I dare I risk putting him with big lineups when he's unproven? So he he was doing an album. I think it might have been Sid Dale conducting. It could have been Lansdowne. I'm not sure. Anyway, they got me to write one piece for the session, and that piece was free. I, I wasn't the session. Mm-hmm. That piece was Free Wheelers, which convinced Robin that I was okay to do uh, the big stuff because the big stuff, the next tune you heard was called...
0: "That's um, uh, Power
1: Montage. Power Montage. That was recorded in Germany, which was a few months later when Robin had now given me my big opportunity. And I think I did either eight or could be 16 pieces mm. for a big orchestra. I mean, that, that orchestra is at least 40 piece. So it went from doing nursery rhymes in a little KPM studio with about four musicians <laughs> to 40 <laughs> musicians in Hamburg or wherever it was So, yeah, it was a big leap. But Robin, although Robin believes his gut instinct, it's a big leap to take somebody from four-piece or five pieces in a little studio to Mm. give them a big orchestra, and they're conducting it. So he had to try me out, and that's fine.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, it works. It's a really... It's got a real sort of bombast to the the track. That was me, bombast. (laughs) I was well known as Chief Bombast. (laughs) Um, But also a real swing to it as well. You know, you can see the... um, Because a lot of the... um, the library tracks that people know from you, which Mm. one, which we'll play shortly actually, that have a sort of real funk element to it and a real drive added to it. And I think that has that as well.
1: Well, this is where the experience of working in KPM and being confronted with pop music, I would never have written that kind of music before I joined KPM. Mm. And what it was, of course I had the background, orchestral and big bands and all that sort of thing. And I wrote for those instruments. So, and I played a lot of instruments, but I didn't really understand or have any feel for was pop rhythms. Being in, kpm and then as i say james brown and things like that then tamla motown and you suck all that stuff in and it begins to influence how you how you hear things how you want to uh, uh, compose music so those th- th- those experiences in kpm had a big impact on turning my head around mm-hmm. and making me much more commercial in terms of i was now writing a lot of my contemporaries who are very good writers they weren't in tune with pop music as mm-hmm. i was forced to be so when I got my chance to, to work with people like Dusty Springfield and those people, I was now a pop arranger, but I came from the old school. I could have been 20 years older in terms of my expertise, mm. but I wasn't. I was 20 <laughs> years younger.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that uh, that track power montage is from the Flamboyant Themes Volume 1 uh, album, which was from 1968. And that series of albums is, is very well known. It's sort of one of the... Uh, real collectible sets in in terms of library and uh it's when you get to flamboyant themes volume 2 uh you've got probably your best known track across the world uh, which is funky fanfare mm-hmm. um and actually I was uh I was at the cinema last weekend at the Prince Charles cinema down the road uh and they played it there and the uh, the feature's coming soon oh, you know great. it's it's everywhere <laughs> uh and i think uh it's included in the new tarantino film i think he's picked up on it again
1: again it's wow it's used at least twice before yeah. Great, yeah
0: yeah someone's done a playlist of music featured in his new film which it's only been screened at Cannes so far i believe um but that's included in the yeah. in the track listing for that yeah. so um
1: well because funky fanfare doesn't sound anything like the two pieces you've played so far it's completely
0: yeah completely different yeah and um and that track it's been covered a hell of a lot mm. as well, you know, both at the time and still now, I think mm. it was, it's been sampled very well by danger doom in a track called old, old school, which yeah. uses it yeah. pretty much in its, in its form. Um, and there was the, it was in the 1968 or 69, the rs what were they called? They called bands. that's right. They did another, they, they did a version of it, version. a very sort of relaxed psychedelic version of it. Um, But it was actually, it was originally recorded as a B-side, I believe. That's
1: right, yeah. Another, one of those happy accidents. Yeah. This was, I was just about to go to um, Brussels with Robin to do, um, I think I was doing about 24 titles. And uh, I I was always had to, I would do those 24 titles in probably two weeks, you know, just over two, but maybe three, maybe three weeks. Uh, And, uh, the session came in i didn't want to do it um why did i you know, anyway it came in it was an instrumental the drummer called tony newman it was a very good pop drummer and the the guy the producer persuaded me said look you can write the b we'll write the b side which meant i would write it i'd get paid for the arrangement but we would split the the composition and all i had to do was the a side so it was only two tracks so uh, i talked myself into it so on the sunday Uh, I did the A-side Sunday afternoon. Monday morning, I got up with a B-side to compose. I had to be at Decca for 2.30. I had to compose the music, score it, get to London, then conduct the A-side while my copyist was busily copying the B-side so we could do that afterwards. In a situation like that, you'd spend two hours doing the A-side. Then you'd have your 20-minute break. Then the guys would come back, and you'd have 40 minutes or less to do the other track. So that's what happened. But then, of course, as happened many times, they then turned over the B-side and made it the A-side. But before the session started, I'd said to the producer, I said, I've got some bad news for you. I wasn't able to write a new piece for you. I thought, why am I giving this guy (laughs) half of my copyright when I didn't even want to do this session? Mm -hmm. So I said, look, I've had to use one of the KPM pieces because he knew I was going away. That's why I didn't want to do the session first place. Mm -hmm. So that was the original recording. It was called Soul Thing, not Funky Fanfare. Yeah. And then two weeks later I'm in Germany recording the same piece of music for Robin and it's called Funky Fanfare. Now the point is that KPM published both versions so there was no conflict uh, you know, of, of interest. The mm. KPM published both. One in the commercial world is called Soul Thing and in the library world a different recording is called Funky Fanfare which is the one that Tarantino knows because he heard the library version. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, let's take a listen. Okay. Fanfare and slow rocker.
1: Wow, yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: both from the uh, flamboyant themes, volume two, oh. uh, and both very flamboyant.
1: Oh, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> I used to wear colourful shirts in those days. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, which that actually brings me on to what I was going to talk about next, which was you know working in London in the in the nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies. What what are your recollections of? of that you know everyone talks about the swinging 60s and you know we've got carnaby street literally just up the road from here you sure. know what was that period like for you
1: it was fantastic um i as you say i went into kpm in 1964 and then i left in 1966 and then i went to work for another publisher at least i didn't mm-hmm. work for him i had a, um, the use of the facility there mm-hmm. but i had to do what they call their top lines in, in those days you had to have top lines to give to the prs and things like that to um for, for catalogue purposes. Um, so that led on to my first big session because through that uh, through that publisher, Eddie Kastner, uh, who then formed President Records, uh, they had a group they wanted to record. It was a singer called Robert Plant from a group mm-hmm. called The Listen. And in those days, the record companies wouldn't use the, the guys in the band. They had to use session musicians. So I was the MD for that session with Robert Plant. I think the title was called You Better Run. And um, on uh, bass guitar, we had John Paul Jones on bass guitar, uh, who was a session musician then. On lead guita- on second guitar was a guy called Johnny McLaughlin, who a year later joined Miles Davis, so he mm. must have been a mean player. And on lead guitar was a guy called Big Jim Sullivan, who was the, the guy who did all the hits in those days. And it was Alan Hawkshaw on keyboard and Clem Coutini on drums. So it was a of uh, Alan Hawkshaw and Clem Cattini carried on working with me for years. But mm. of course, as we said, um, John McLaughlin went with Miles Davis, so he wasn't interested in my sessions after <laughs> that. <laughs> and when I phoned John Paul Jones, that was always on the road. So, you know, it's just not possible. <laughs> also, uh, um, Jimmy Page was a session musician in those days. Yeah. And he wasn't on that session, but I used him on, uh, on a couple of other sessions.
0: I actually have that track ready to play. Which one? Uh, listen. Oh, great. Run. yeah Oh, I, did this, I didn't know. This is seamless, Keith. This oh, is great. Oh, this is great. Yeah, I'd be <laughs> interested to hear
1: it. This is the first big session I ever did.
0: Let's take a listen.
1: Okay.
2: Yours, now I'm all the doors what you' trying to do
1: to my run, Wow he could really sing couldn't he? <laughs> yeah <laughs> No wonder he went places.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's got a much earthier tone to his voice there you know it, it's coming it's much uh, deeper growl I think where he's he sort of must have opened uh. opened it up later but it's still you know uh, unmistakably him yeah very good um and i guess you know that same sort of period when you were when you were working on that there's uh there was a very big hit you were involved with as well the uh the love affair and oh, ever, sure, yeah. Yeah. everlasting love yeah, yeah uh which was a huge number one single mm. uh across quite a lot of europe as well i believe yeah it was
1: big it was big
0: um, what was it like working on that? Because I think it was, it was that record that then brought about uh, some solo records for yourself as well.
1: Well, in fact, first of all, the You Better Run track, that led me to getting the CBS connection. Because mm. although it's a great record, I hear it now, I think, what a good record. It wasn't a big hit, mm. but it did lead, C- it was released through CBS. And CBS, the guy the, in the A&I department there called Mike Smith, phoned me up at KPM, found out where I was and said, I want to meet you and took me to, there's a place called the Giaconda, the other side of the road from KPM. And they said, look, he said, I think you're going to be the next big arranger. and I want you to be my arranger. So that was it. He just gave me loads of work and we, be, we were friends for life. And uh, it started, that was my connection with CBS, mm-hmm. which gave me a lot of work there with all their artists, including Everlasting Love and those people and the Marmalade and Tremolos and people like Georgie Fame, all tired at CBS Uh, and then other people of course heard that Dusty Springfield and whatever and then that led on to me working with those people but you go back to those pit that period in the 60s it was so busy there was so much work going on for arrangers like myself uh, and and the musicians I mean personally I couldn't do any more work I was I needed a mental breakdown when I was 28 29 I Mm. I used to average four hours in bed a night you know it was killer absolute killer and um I had an office when I left um, Kastner's. I was only there a little while. I went freelance. I, had an o- I shared an office in Denmark Street with several copyists and two other arrangers. And it was the hub of the music business. Half of what was going on commercially in London would go through that office on a daily mm. basis. So it was a great place to work with. A great place to work. There was, such a, there was always something happening. There was an energy there that came from that. Professional energy, you know. So... Uh, um, and, and you would be you'd see these guys walking down the street with their guitars, or their, usually guitars but sometimes brass players but mostly guitar players and that they would end up being guys who'd be looking for work, looking to be with a group or they're songwriters, there was all that energy there, people trying to go somewhere KPM's a very small street, maybe just over 100 yards long and mm. there were a lot of music publishers there, two or three studios and all these people hungry to, to find their way in music and you'd meet guys who'd be the office boy, post boy, whatever, and two years later, the managing director, of a, or they were a real <laughs> serious heavyweight guy mm. uh, in the music business, you know? And just one last story, next to KPM, was a publisher called Mills Music, and there was a song plugger there called Tony Hiller. And Tony Hiller, always trying to get me to do various songs, years later, he, fought, he became the manager and the producer of a gr- group called Brotherhood of Man. And he, he, he owned the group, he was the producer. He wrote the song, um, to whatever it is, United We Stand, to, with another friend of mine. So he ended up owning everything. everything. Years later, I, was, I went to see Santana at, the, uh, at um, Earl's Court. And as I'm coming away from oh, Wembley, as I'm walking down this alleyway, this white Rolls Royce comes down, this window rolls, rolls down, and it's Tony Hill. He said, not bad for song plugger, eh, Keith? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Did he offer you a lift, or did he no, then speed no, 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 away? No, no, no. He, was, he was now big time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was an arranger. Why would he bother, <laughs> other than to gloat? <laughs>
0: uh, well, let's take a listen to "Everlasting Love." Okay. Everlasting Love, uh, and that was followed by a track called Step Forward from 1970, which is on the progressive pop album, uh, with the unmistakable tones of Alan Hawkshire on the Hammond there. Um, And Alan was someone that you worked with a lot throughout the years. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, What was it it like as a composer at KPM? I guess, was there a real sort of camaraderie with everyone in in terms of working together? Because I guess for a long while, you all would have been on sessions together.
1: Well, um, of course, we w- we weren't KPM composers in terms of we weren't signed to KPM no. like a songwriter. So none of us were exclusive to KPM. We could, mm. uh, but of course, people all the other writer, all the other people like um, Alan Hawkshaw, Alan Parker, Steve Gray. They were all players. That was their main thing. Johnny Pearson was a writer conductor. Mm. I was the only only one of the guys who his job was being an arranger. I sat in an office every day doing arrangers or composing. It's a much, let's put it this way. Being an arranger is the worst job that I did. I did a lot of jobs in music and being an arranger is the worst. It's Mm. not a good, being a musician is much more fun. You know, even if you're not in a good mood, you turn up at the session, somebody's having a laugh and a joke and you sit down and play the music. And if you're, playing good great and if you're only playing average probably nobody's going to notice but if you're on a range sitting on on your own and you haven't got an idea in your head and you've got three to do that day believe you me it's a rotten feeling and I used to have that feeling quite often you know (laughs) you'd you'd wait there and you just would dry you had nothing Mm. to offer but you had to still turn out another three arrangers I much preferred composing because if I turned up when I was you see, if you turn up as an arranger, you've got the three pieces there you've got to do for that session, for that artist. And mm-hmm. I might not have felt like it. If I was a composer, I might, might not have felt like doing half the stuff that was in my head, but I might oh, I'll do this instead. And I could just turn myself onto doing something that wasn't necessarily the main thing on the album I was doing, but I could start somewhere else. Once you get started, the machinery gets going and then it gets easier. It's mm-hmm. just always get, getting started so yeah I, I found being a composer much easier than being a, an arranger <laughs>
0: yeah and i wanted to talk to you about um sports theme tunes mm-hmm. which is uh is something you're very much associated with because uh the wimbledon theme tune uh grandstand uh the big match uh another one of yours as well um and you know, the the track Light and Tuneful, which became the Wimbledon theme tune, was uh was something that wasn't written for that purpose. No. But it's now so synonymous mm. with that that when you hear it, you yeah. are almost hearing tennis balls being hit back and forth, despite the fact there's none of that in the piece of music.
1: I know, it's it's hardly any of the uh live music that we wrote, the themes that we did, if we'd been given the commission I doubt that many of us would have written the piece of music that became the theme for that program mm. as a library piece. We'd have written it. If somebody had asked me to write Wimbledon theme, I would never have come up with that idea for it. I would never have come up with grants. We, we were approached by BBC that, that certain composers when we were going to record in Germany, could these composers come up with something with grandstand in mind. They were about, they wanted to change the music. And um, so Johnny Scott, Johnny Pearson, myself, possibly Alan Hawkshaw, we wrote pieces of music for it. The BBC didn't, BBC didn't like any of them for the programme. So they then looked at what what else had been recorded at the same sessions and what we now know as Grandstand was selected. And I thought, but that's not sport music. Why have they chosen that? I could never <laughs> understand why they chose it at the time, but it just shows how much they knew that that I didn't understand. The mm. piece of music I wrote for it was really straightforward uh, sports music but it was quite predictable and boring the mm. thing about grandstand which i didn't understand at the time is that grandstand could be both large if you had a big occasion the music was big enough to take that occasion but if it was a tiddlywinks championship you could still use the same music Yeah. whereas <laughs> if you've got big grandiose music it might sound great for an olympics but when you've got table tennis it's just as too big for it so it had that sort of uh aspect to it the other thing which was accidental was it was both pop music and it was big band music. It starts out as pop music, what we call triads, you know, simple chords Mm. writing. And then when it gets to the middle section, I go into big band music. And the only reason for that was I remember coming up with a tune on the way into the office. I had at least one piece. to That was composed and orchestrated in the same day. And the next day I would start something else. and I might even do two the next day because I was I only had several days to go before the sessions. So something like that. When I looked down at my score paper, I suddenly thought, I'm writing this as a pop arrangement. but I've got a big orchestra. I've got four trumpets, four trombones, French horns. And so when I got, so I'd got this idea for the opening. I wrote it down at the traffic lights on the way at Haymarket or somewhere. So when I, but I straight away started orchestrating it because when you've got little time, mm. you don't know where you're going. You just start. And then you sometimes can correct things at the beginning afterwards, but you just go with it. And when I got to that middle section, Don't Ask Me Why, and I went into that jazz chord, as, as people say, jazz chord, which is just big band, straight big band, right? Because I was thinking, I've got to use the orchestra. Mm. And I couldn't, I couldn't use the orchestra the way I wanted to, just using pop chords, you know, just triads. So it it was one of those things that if I had time to think about it, I wouldn't have done it. (laughs) It wouldn't have been anywhere near as good as it is because it's got the ambivalence of being more than one thing. Mm.
0: And uh, and this is something i we'll talk about with uh, with Laura later Mm. as well. It's like, what do you think makes a good theme tune? So, I mean, do you think on the basis of that, it is this sort of unknown quantity where you can't, you know when you're trying to write something for a purpose it's not always going to work and maybe it is the element of surprise that comes with i'd there. hate
1: to be a composer now trying to make my way uh in the same way that with live music we were you, you had a feel first of all, you have to understand i was working in kpm in the arrange department i mm. found about the library within the first week i was the library was on the floor above us in the arrange department and the toilet was on the mezzanine level between the two. So every time I'd go to the toilet, which was quite frequently, <laughs> I'd hear this music <laughs> coming from upstairs and it'd be this big band orchestra music. I thought, what the hell is that? So I found out all about it. And so I was aware of live music much before most other people because it was a hidden world. Mm. Um, so, um, no, I've lost the track. I've lost the plot. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the question?
0: About what makes a good thing? Oh, dream. good. To you. Yeah. yeah, so
1: the thing is, most of the time, uh, now, nowadays, you're given a brief, specific brief. It's got to be this, it's got to be that, it's got to be the other. Oh, God, I wouldn't know, wouldn't know where to start. We were just writing music, mm. different things, with a very simple brief. Uh, I mean, sometimes it might be as simple as, a tu- you know, tuneful in the style of Herb Alpert or something with, but it could have been things like that they use just to set, let's set the, the mood of where you're trying to go mm. you don't have to if you're a talented person you don't have to rip them off they just mean you know if it's Tijuana you can use this duh, 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 just sort of phrasing things like that and with back racks, the sort of chords they use but uh, that, all that's easy but when you try and write a signature tune um, you, you've sort of got it all narrowed down I've got to do this got to do that and I don't think it I don't think it just flows in the same way when you're doing it without having to worry about it being a hit for instance that's one of yeah. the great things with library as opposed to being uh, when you're involved in the commercial world, you're always looking for hits. In library, you don't have to have a hit. It's just got to be music that people use. And they don't just want tuneful items. They want often a lot of stuff which isn't tuneful at all. And for a composer, it's a wonderful world to live in. You know, you can do all this dark, weird music, you know, angular, people are going to kill each other, or whatever, and you can have a lot of fun writing that. (laughs) I mean, it sounds great, but you can have a lot of fun doing that. At the same time, you you know, you do things... um, where you write tuneful things, tune for piece of music, uh, and then you learn how to write without there being a tune. You learn to write without there being rhythm. How do you write without there being any chords? Mm-hmm. You've got no melody, no chords, no rhythm. It's hard, but you just learn how to. to to go in these different directions because you you, if you're like i was being paid to learn all these things to teach myself (laughs) (laughs) i was a good teacher (laughs) or a good learner one of the two
0: (laughs) uh well let's let's take a listen to the those those two iconic themes so we've got uh light and tuneful which is uh the wimbledon theme tune uh followed by Grandstand.
1: Okay, now it's talking about sports music, and I think there's a couple of reasons why I was so fortunate at sports music. One is actually I love sport, and I would have loved to have done sport. I do a lot of sport now still. Uh, So I've got an affinity with sport. But the other thing was this strange uh, quirk with coming to KPM that I was part of pop music now and Mm -hmm. pop rhythms, but my background was orchestral or big bands. Mm. The thing about these pieces of music, in the old days... Uh, sports tunes are always march tempo and if you think that's actually a march tempo but instead of it being the marching drums you have a rhythm section there so a lot of most of my sports themes that got were famous have that sort of same tempo but instead of I say but it's basically got a, a pop rhythm running through it with proper brass, brass writing on top of it
0: yeah. And it's it's fantastic to watch. Uh, obviously, we had the KPM All-Star show last year yeah. uh, and then there was the, the one I think six years prior than, than that that I was also at. When you hear you hear the crowd full of, you know, adults singing an instrumental track back at you, yeah. you know, just a load of people singing grandstand yeah. is it's quite majestic to yeah. to watch.
1: There's actually another story that I didn't know until 10 years ago. I have a piece of music that was even bigger than any of those things in Brazil, which was used, and because it was wrongly accredited at the time, I didn't know anything about it. But it's still over 50, it's nearly, it's over 45 years, and they still use it. And they did a big program about five years ago, six years ago, with a big orchestra playing it. And then last year, they sent somebody over from Brazil to interview me, Mm -hmm. and suddenly filmed it to be with their 45 years And they put this, so they came over interviewing me, and and it was like 10 minutes to start the sports program, (laughs) interviewing me, how I (laughs) come to write the tune. And I sing. I have a choir, and we sing Papa Papa. And it's called Papa Papa by a lot of people in Brazil. And on this program, they had all these sports people singing it. And it turns out that uh, Fittipaldi, he had it played at his wedding. And in this, they go through all these sportsmen. At the end of it, they have Pele. (laughs) <laughs> they interview's Pelly and he sings my bloody piece of music. I mean, how great is that? I wrote this piece <laughs> of music in 1969. It's now earned me a bloody fortune. And I didn't know anything about it until 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah, so that's fantastic.
0: And did you get any footage? Like, have you
1: Well, I get, came over on at the time, but mm-hmm. then it, they go off after a certain period of time. I wish I'd... I guess I could get hold of it but it was good, yeah, it was good. <laughs> I think some of it you can see Pele that bit but they my actual interview mm. um, I, I think that lasted the test of time Pele did <laughs> but not me <laughs> um,
0: Another thing I wanted I wanted to play out actually which not many people uh, at EMI KPM know very much about this record it was uh, it's a record called KPM Program Music
1: which oh, was oh, a yeah, um, yeah yeah
0: It was an album of arrangements yeah. uh, of EMI published. Yeah. EMI published yeah. works, but yeah. basically pop works. So yeah. there's um, there's a Kate Bush uh, track on there. There's Wuthering Heights. There's Rolling Stones. I think there's Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Uh, and then I think that there's an, an original work on there by yourself as well. I believe. Um, but they were all arranged by you. I think is that right? No. Nah. No,
1: no, no. There, was, there certainly wasn't an original on there. Don't, I'm pretty sure okay. of that the program music was designed to deal with the BBC had a restriction called needle time, mm-hmm. and they could only play so many commercial records, and they had to have or- live orchestras. They had to have orchestras, which we had several orchestras, which provided a big part of the of their musical output. There was one way around this issue where they had this what they call programme music, which were basically records, which they could play, but that wouldn't be counted as needle time oh, wow. on their pop records. So Robin saw this opportunity to make these albums mm-hmm. and so I was one of the arrangers. I think Johnny Scott did Johnny Scott, Johnny Pearson. There was several arrangers were asked to do some pieces. Mm-hmm. But I don't think any of them would be original because that wouldn't be the they'd be all known pieces. Yeah, yeah. I'll
0: have to check because the the funny thing is we don't actually have a copy of it in the office. It's mm. it came via our Italian office who oh, okay. who were asked, "Yeah, what is this? What yeah. is this record? Can uh, we do anything with yeah. it?" Um, and but you know because they're you know the it's been what sort of thirty maybe forty years, nineteen eighty two, so sort of thirty five years since that record mm. was done. Um you know, I think we would have to then go and speak to the composers to ask if we could do anything with it. So I think, you know, I don't think we'd ever do anything with the record. It just sort of sits there mm. as, a, as, a, as a period piece, I guess. So I'm going to play a track from it. Okay. Um, and it's probably going to be the only time you, anyone's ever going to hear this version mm. of Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush, which uh, it's it's a pretty fascinating track because it starts off a completely different way to how it ends.
1: Okay, so we are talking about different I yes, I this is a, not the one I thought you were talking about. I do remember this album. We did it at my studio and I did do all the arrangements. So I thought you talked uh, about the orchestral one that several of us did, which was recorded probably in Paris or Brussels or somewhere. Mm-hmm. But this was recorded at my studio out in the country. When well, I used to have a studio out in the country. <laughs> 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 um
0: so yeah, we're gonna take this. this is probably good the last first and last time anyone's gonna hear this track.
1: Well, I haven't heard I, yeah. I have no idea how it goes. <laughs> it <in> might <my,
2: laughs>
0: Um, well, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Keith. My pleasure. And, uh, yeah, here is a, uh, here's a premiere of uh, Wuthering
1: Heights. Okay.
0: Thank you very much, Keith Mansfield, for joining us here. And that's that will be the first and last time anyone's ever going to hear that track. It's gone. Disappeared. Uh, we now welcome Laura Canal. Hello.
3: Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you.
0: Um, so, let's, a quick uh, introduction to your music. Uh, you've been described as experimental folk chamber and early music yes. uh, a composer. How would Is that how you would describe it yourself as well?
3: Um, I suppose my easiest way of explaining it is experimental medieval mm. um but i don't know <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like minimal cinema or minimal chamber but as in um using extended techniques to sound like more than one player so it could be a solo yes. piece but it sounds like multiple players
0: um and so you 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 use a technique which I've, I've never seen before when, when I'd seen you play live, which is the overbow yeah. uh, technique. So tell us about that, how how that works.
3: So it's basically taking a, a violin bow and taking the end pin out, and the um, which holds basically the hair side to the stick side of your bow. <laughs> and you put the stick underneath the violin and the hair's over the top so you can play between two and four strings at the same time. So you can get like really good chordal stuff. It's a bit like yeah. a hurdy-gurdy, but it's not quite um but it means that you can get this real sort of depth and breathing kind of rasping um kind of sound and lots Mm -hmm. of different um dissonance chords and things as well
0: and when did you when did you start doing like how how do you find out that you can do that is it just through uh, playing around with the instrument, or was it something that you'd?
3: Um, well, I'm a self-taught violinist, mm. and I studied the recorder for you know my undergrad and masters. And I think around that time, I um, went to a workshop, um, a violin workshop, and it was um, Eliza Carthy. You know the oh folk yes. Um, singer and fiddle player and um, she sort of did it in a festival workshop as a kind of look you can do this with violin and I just kind of it just went in my head and I tried it like maybe a couple of years later and then about 10 years after that I remembered that I thought it was interesting when I was trying to kind of um, re-find and reestablish my career after being in a band for nearly 10 years mm. so I needed to find what I could do what's the most that I can do on my own without relying on anybody and having the sort of liberation that comes with performing solo, but not doing kind of um, standard repertoire like Baroque stuff and recitals and mm. things like that. So I really wanted to push my practice. Um, and then after I started doing that, it took a little while because it's a bit awkward to be able to relax and do that. Um, but that's, you know, it flows now. Um but then I found um, there's a French violin manual from 1880, which had uh, like a page right at the back, mm-hmm. um, which said, "Oh, you could do this sort of polyphonic bowing thing." So that's kind of, and un- I started doing it, and I just thought this, this has got legs. Mm. <laughs>
0: Fantastic! Uh, and you've just done a library album for us, which um, that came out on the 1st of June on the Sparkle and Burn label, um, called Ancient Atmospheres. Yes. Um, so. Tell us about that. Like, what what was uh, the thing I always find interesting when speaking to uh, composers who also write commercially is, you know, are you are you picturing images when you write? a library or are you letting those images come as you compose i guess because your music is already very evocative and cinematic to a degree yeah but
3: i think i never set out to write cinematic and evocative music in that (laughs) sense i was just trying to find out who am i what am i doing Mm. you know after working with other people for so long and it's only when i started getting reviews in for my solo albums that i start i started to understand what i do because Mm -hmm. the good thing about reviewers is that they if they get it then they start explaining to you what you do which is really handy (laughs) and then you can kind of utilize that to sort of think oh yeah no that that really you know it sort of resonates with with you Mm. um I don't know I think that I am I mean I live in a really rural place and in some ways it's the barrenness which really helps me because I'm Mm. not distracted by people or buildings and and things that can easily get in your head and I think um you can be very easily influenced by you know, lots of sounds and people and and just everything and noise and everything. Um, So I I don't think, I think I actually go blank. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) that's like a very Norfolk kind of way to say it. But I just, I got to the point where I was over planning so much that I needed to just not do any thinking or planning. Mm. Um, So I take my instruments and, and my Zoom recorders and I go into all the local churches and interesting sounding places. And then I just improvise until... I've I, I make myself improvise and then I come home and see if it's any good, mm. rather than trying to decide what something is before I start. So that's yeah. I mean, I am thinking, but I'm not pre-prescribing.
0: Yeah, you're 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 thinking of process rather than I guess composition, which comes as you play. Yeah, I think yeah. it's
3: the trust that a lot of material and a lot of sounds have gone in. I don't mean yeah. I sit in the countryside and don't listen to anything. <laughs> yeah. I just mean that, like, you know, I, I pour over scores and listen to masses of music. But I like the idea of then forgetting all of it and then just seeing mm. what comes out and trusting that all of the sort of diet of music that you put in, you have your own voice. And so it's like trying to find what your voice is without trying to push it too hard.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, let's take a listen to one of the tracks from the album. This is, I think it's the second track on the album, which is uh, Rise of the Moon.
2: Mm (laughs) Mm-hmm.
0: of the moon yes (laughs) uh which is very if when you're looking outside at the rain and (laughs) there it it adds a lot more atmosphere to it now
3: yeah yeah it does and I think that's one of the things I did actually when we were writing this music I went on the East Anglian Film Archive and found lots of really old films and then watched them with the sound down (laughs) or things that silent films on the BFI website and just to see whether how it worked Oh, yeah. so it was quite I did that sort of afterwards mm. and then that obviously then completely changes how you how you hear the music yeah. so that was kind of my test of does it work with lots of different things
0: yeah because I mean that's interesting because that's how most of the, well, the usage will come is through people finding the music and going oh, I'll put that to the image see if that works or if, yeah. you know or I'll try that one I'll try that one and then seeing what works so it's interesting that you you were trying that yourself. I was trying see? it <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted it to be good. <laughs>
2: so.
0: Um, and so, this uh, library project you've done under the pseudonym of Isabel Raven. I have, yes. Um, and sort of throughout your work, there is this theme of birds, and a lot of it's to do with hawks and birds of yeah. prey. How how has that come about? Like, was that an intentional thing?
3: No, not at all. I mean, <laughs> the village that I grew up in is called Raveningham. So it's got raven mm. in the title. So that's kind of like my middle name and my village that I grew up in is, <laughs> is my pseudonym. <laughs> so it's not secret anymore. Um, and um, no, I think it's the sort of openness and the freedom and the trying to be boundaryless and borderless. Mm-hmm. And just I think that there's, there's no... Because birds have they have voice but they don't you there's there are no specific words or meanings and you can draw what meaning you want from them mm. um, and it's the same with sort of landscape you can draw what meaning and feelings you want or need at that time yeah um and i kind of like that sort of very ambiguous idea that i'm not it's not like about a city or about a place or about about a period of time it's very much like could be any time in the last i don't know 2000 years yeah or yeah, 10,000 years, whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, and what is it that um, that brought you to that type of music? Um, did, were you Was that an interest you had prior? Because you studied it, I think. Yeah, so yeah. as a
3: recorder player, um, I yeah. I mean, I started with everyone else at primary school and, you know, all playing in a group together. And I just carried it on. I did. It was interesting listening to Keith, actually, because he said that he did, learned the piano for like a year and a half and then stopped and his parents were a bit like oh dear um <laughs> and i you know i did the recorder and then i switched to did the piano as well for a bit but i just didn't get on with it as an instrument i couldn't it felt like it was pressing buttons i didn't understand how that was mm. music in the same way as an instrument which is like you hold and it's part of you um and i just i just really loved the recorder basically and then i managed to get um the local piano teacher then said oh um, I teach the recorder too, and then I started doing Baroque music and early music because that's like the main repertoire mm. for that. And, and I had a couple of other really good um, recorder teachers. and And when I was fourteen, I um, played one of the recorder parts in Mont- Monteverdi's sixteen ten Vespers in Beckles Church, <laughs> <laughs> so in a weirdly local way. And that was kind of it. Just that was the, the music that, that I was playing a lot, and so, mm-hmm. so I understood it a lot. And so it's always been something that I've really felt passionate about and Mm -hmm. and feels like a really it feels like a good way of communicating um i don't know it just for me that's the sound that resonates with me really well
0: yeah i remember seeing uh it was a documentary years ago maybe 10 15 years ago we about martin carthy and about him he was talking about how he he likes finding these old songs um that you know dating from the sort of 14th century um and feels like you know because it, it's just written down uh and there's no music to it he was like he was saying how he wanted to sort of get that in a form that someone can then absorb again because you yeah. know he was i think he was saying something like he he wouldn't expect someone to go and find this text But if it's on an album uh, or being performed again, that it has another life again, I guess, really.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think that with a lot of early music scores, it's the same thing. And it's like, it's not like in romantic and classical music where the scores have a lot more, the composer has a lot more control in terms of like how you perform it. And, Mm. you know, it's very much um, dictated to you. And it's about sometimes being very. having a very virtuosic ability so that you can do anything that's on the page in front of you i would like going back further to where a lot of the music is anonymous or traditional and um it's completely open to interpretation mm. and so I, I, I one of the things that i do is take tiny fragments of medieval music like maybe from the fifth century um and then rework that and rework it and try and explore what the space is between two or three notes so instead of like taking a whole tune and like doing an arrangement of it you know you might have a 32 bar tune or something Mm -hmm. i might just take three notes and then if there's an interval of like four or five i don't know notes tones whatever (laughs) um Exploring how you can get from A to B. Not A to B, but A to whatever. Yes, <laughs> um, yeah. But exploring how you can travel between two positions and all the different ways that you can do that through ornamentation, mm. through improvisation. Um, so it's like, rather than looking at everything, just having a sort of microscopic view that then then suddenly opens up a whole world of other possibilities.
0: Yeah. Um, let's take another listen. I'd uh, listen to another track from that album. Uh, this is a track called Smoke Signals. mm So that was uh, Smoke Signals from the, the new library album, Ancient Atmospheres, And that is, is that a bass that's being sort of almost yeah. percussively...
3: Yeah, it's a, an acoustic bass guitar. Mm. And then a fiddle.
0: And with the library album, like when when you'd composed it and you'd listened back, were there any TV shows where you were thinking... I want that one. I want them to find it and I want them to use it.
3: (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I don't know.
0: Um,
3: I mean, what's weird is how you listen so differently to all programmes and films as soon as you start writing for, you know, library music. And it's like something I've obviously always, as a musician, always listened a little bit extra hard to. um, But it just... There are so many different sorts of music that are used in so many different circumstances that you can't say... Oh, these sorts of programs have that sort of music. It's like crazy. Mm. It's like anything is possible.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think with with certain programs, like we've noticed, where it could be a program that uses one of our tracks as the song that's on the radio as opposed to within yeah. the programme. So it's, and you're kind of, sometimes you're just like, well, where, where is it? Where is it? Yeah,
3: and it's like, that's like pretending to be a real, uh, you know, a real beast. <laughs> yeah. <within. laughs> this is in this alternate universe, yeah.
0: Um, So you, you, you don't think there was, it was nowhere in your mind where you were like, I, I want homes under the hammer. I, w- I want <laughs> that one. Or well, i say
3: Vikings. <laughs> uh, we, yes. I was like, weirdly, there was like this local, viking and anglo-saxon festival just over the road from where we live and um they were playing the vikings theme music and i'd just been watching it and i just there's basically they use loads and loads of early instruments but in a quite a contemporary way um i don't know i just suddenly got a bit into that it's <laughs> yeah. like an epic saga that went on for years and years and years and but yeah that kind of thing mm. i think is really interesting and also um an obvious one is like the kind of Game of Thrones yeah, because they use a different piece of music and a different theme for each family. Mm-hmm. So in each episode it's quite interesting that you kind of know who you're dealing with Um and then, you know, it's this kind of resolution that comes orally and sonically as well mm. as visually, which I really is really interesting. And also that, that they use, the composer there used the cello as like the main, using low strings as the main idea. Mm. Which I th- yeah, um, I just I think it's yeah, it's very I don't know if there's like a specific one which is my like dream place. I just <laughs> want people to like it and use it and hopefully create an atmosphere that kind of changes the story
0: slightly. Yeah, and I think, you know, that the the beauty of live music is that it's all subjective to the the person who's searching for the music, you know, one person's Game of Thrones could be another person's Hollyoaks. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, it can end up anywhere.
3: Well, I think that's why I like the idea of ancient atmospheres as well. It's like you might think that I don't. It's quite contemporary what we're doing. It's not. Mm. We're not doing pure early music. Um, so it's still, it still can definitely be used in all sorts of different situations. Um, yeah. I don't
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think you know, I think with. With very sparse uh, folk music, there is a um, it is getting used a lot at the moment. You know, there was the the Clio Bernard film uh, from last year, which used uh, had a very sort of sparse score, uh, and PJ Harvey on the Virtues uh, her score. Yeah. Uh, from earlier this year has, uh, again, it's very sort of thumping, rhythmic, but very minimal sort yeah. of Yeah, and like music. with
3: the Colin Stetson. I think we've talked about yes. that before, haven't we? Yeah. And he's... Um, oh, what's the film that he the Hered- Hereditary. Hereditary, yes. Yeah. Um, I've just been listening to that soundtrack, actually, and just, I mean, I love his music anyway, mm. and it's, it's saxophone, and the very first um, thing that I heard of his was... Um, one of the history of warfare volume one or two, I can't remember where basically he had 20 mics on about on his body and instrument. And then the whole piece is like mixed out of every texture and timbre that he plays that you can't necessarily hear at the time. Yeah. And I just, I love that minimal idea. And so most of the things on the ancient atmospheres um, is, it's two instruments, basically it's two players Mm -hmm. all the time. Um but it might be two players who sound like four players and yeah. none of it is overdubbed. It's all completely it's live. Mm. Um which I kind of think is really important for the way that I work and the way that I want to compose at the moment as well.
0: Yeah. Um and I was gonna play a track from your 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 new album as well. Um the not the the library <laughs> one but the <laughs> my personal one. Um the Sky on Tunes uh, yes. album. Yeah. Um and I know that you've said that this this album is sort of a different phase in in composition for you. So tell us a little about that.
3: Yeah, I think I was looking at different tunings and and scordatura, and also just I mean I'm always looking for interesting spaces and resonances and acoustics and things like that. Um, but yeah, this one. I don't know, everything's just a bit weird. (laughs) I don't know whether it's like politically and personally and not all bad, but, Mm. you know, it definitely feels like things can feel a bit rudderless. And and when I was writing and doing this music, I'd been on tour for about 18 months. Just It's just been, well, 15 years, really, Mm. you know, and you realise that you've just been doing like 50 to 300 things in a year and it's just insane. And then it's it's when you start hearing people you know when you hear pop bands they're like oh yeah we write in our hotel room and so all they can write about is life on the road because now that's their life so yeah. i had to start writing <laughs> about obviously my life on the road is probably not very pop starry but um you know i'd still be like in a in a uh like a this place in bergen in norway so i'll have the extreme kind of thing of a I don't know, a festival in in Helsinki where I'd be there and back to London in 22 hours and have done a gig and then playing in an atrium of an art gallery in Norway and Mm. all the mist coming down over the mountains and like the purest air that you've ever breathed (laughs) and that kind of thing. So it's like I needed to find a way to capture what was actually happening. So Mm -hmm. for me that was the sky untuned and it was like pushing myself further by detuning some of my strings and writing just Trying, just trying different things, really.
0: Cool. This is a track called uh, Striking the Lost Bells. <laughs> talk about which is what we spoke about sort of before the show is and we were talking to Keith about is what makes a good theme tune and so you picked out a few uh choice examples and um so I think I'm just going to play one and then we'll talk about (laughs) it afterwards and this is this is one that I'd completely forgotten forgotten about uh until you mentioned it and so it's been a nice little journey listening back to it so um, well I'm gonna play it (laughs) and then uh, yes (laughs) so let's take a listen So that, for the uninitiated, was the uh, theme from Lovejoy.
3: Yes, Lovejoy Antiques. <laughs> yes, the
0: Ian McShane starring vehicle. Um, so, what made you choose that one?
3: Well, a number of reasons. Anything with a harpsichord in is fun, um, obviously. Yes. Um, and because my parents are antique dealers, so a lot of my sort of upbringing was being at weird fairs and things in big white vans and getting up really early and. Um, Also, it was filmed in Suffolk and everyone's sort of pootling around, having a deal. (laughs) And so it just kind of reminds... It just... I don't know. It's just really good and it's just the sort of program that you can watch and there's always like a little bit of a mystery um mm. and so the music is a little bit mysterious but it always keeps that theme and so i just really love it it's like it just is so evocative for me i think
0: yeah like when hearing it it was just like oh god that did it take you back yeah <laughs> um but then i couldn't really remember what Lovejoy was about i just remember yeah. he was an antique dealer they, they would get into some sort of some sort scrape. of mishap or escape, yeah. yeah. And he would often break the fourth wall and speak to the audience. Yeah, uh, yeah so
3: it's quite pioneering in yeah. that sense.
0: <laughs> um, and that was composed by a guy called Dennis King, oh, who right. he also composed the Black Beauty theme. Tune.
3: Oh, Oh, yeah. oh, my sister will be so pleased. She, she said, I said that I was coming to talk to you today and she was like, say Black Beauty, say Black Beauty. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's not one of my favourites. That's one of your favourites. <laughs> um,
0: which it just led, it led me down this sort of wormhole of listening to the Black Beauty uh... theme tune. And then was thinking how strange it is that there was a programme just about a horse. That, yeah, who that... just looked wistfully yeah.
3: <laughs> a lot and galloped. Um,
0: and then there was this other wormhole of then I went down of looking into Black Beauty remixes. Oh, the... that sounds good it's uh, <laughs> <No>. yeah. <laughs> i mean it'll <laughs> it'll suck your time away um but it's worth it uh, <laughs> uh so another piece of music that you chose well you chose the film uh the dark crystal yes uh and the music from that and so the piece of music i was going to play from that is a piece called the pod dance um which w- i've actually played on the show before but I'll I'll play it and then I'll explain why. Okay. pod dance <laughs> <laughs> from the dark crystal. Um the reason we played that on the show before was that we had a guy called Richard Harvey on the show and he played the crumhorn o- yeah. on that show and like you're a bit partial to a cromhorn. I you- do like <laughs> a cromhorn.
3: And yeah, did he write the dark crystal music or play on it? No,
0: he played on it, but uh, he didn't write okay. it. I think it was Trevor Trevor Jones oh, yeah. who I think he also did the score for Labyrinth. Yes, he, both of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those henson, henson films yeah um okay. so what what is it that drew you to the music from for that film
3: oh God, do you know i'd watched it like when I was little, and it was I found it really creepy and weird, and then maybe about four three or four years ago, I watched it again, and then I realized that um because part of what I do as a performer and also for the um for my composing um is playing two records at the same time. So you've got so it's a way of expanding solo playing. So you mm. play two together and there's also this sort of magical thing called a difference tone, which happens, which is just a, another tone that's created when you play two notes together. Um so it can it sounds bigger than it is. So if you're playing like in a lighthouse or a cathedral or something, which I do sometimes, mm. then um you can get this sort of epic, really crazy sound that sounds really, really ancient but is quite contemporary. Um, and so when I watched it again, I heard this piece, and also is it is it Pod? Was it
0: Pod? Pod,
3: Pod. pod. Um, but there's one of the creatures, one of the is yes. that actually him? I'm not one of the puppets. Anyway, plays a double recorder, uh. and I was like, oh my god! <laughs> it's like I've watched this thing, and then suddenly this thing, having years later, thirty years later, makes total sense to me this sort of magical double recorder thing and it's that is where i heard it and it's a very unusual thing and nobody really does it nobody plays two recorders at the same time but it's also on loads of really ancient um stone carvings um medieval and greek and you know so mm. it's, it's it's something which is a very very early way of playing two pipes or reeded instruments or records at the same time. And so, yeah, that's why... Just because that's such an amazing film. Yeah. And really, really creepy and the music is all early music but it's all re... It's new early music. Mm. It's not... Like with that one, I think it was like a sort of a Saltarello, sort of hopping dance style Italian thing. Um, But there are only 12 of those that actually exist in real real life. (laughs) There are like 12 existing scores and so the that, that's like specially written for which is Fantastic. i think it's really crazy and yeah. great recorder playing
0: uh and there's a tv series coming oh is there yeah i am we'll not sure the when music but will be like that. yeah um well thank you very much for coming on thank you um me. one last thing i thought we should mention is that you are playing where have i written it down you're playing the queen elizabeth hall Yes. On the 3rd of November as part of the Deep minim- Minimalism. Yeah,
3: uh, yeah. Oliver Coates has curated it and it's um, kind of really delving deeply into sort of slow and minimalist stuff, which is basically what I'm doing with my overbow. And I've, I've just made another recording in Whopping Hydraulic Power Station. So the pieces that I've recorded in there, I'm going to kind of relearn and um, present at the Purcell Room.
0: Fantastic. Um, so we're going to play out with... Uh, one last piece of music uh, that you'd chosen from TV, which we'd, we'd mentioned before, actually. This is from the Vikings series. Uh, and this is the theme tune, which is If I Had a Heart, which is by Fever, Ray, yeah. I think. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back in a month. Uh, we've got David Vorhaus, uh on the show next month from uh, White Noise and from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop who did some stuff with us. And uh, we've got some other guests who yet to be announced um so yeah i'll see you in four weeks